0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the current situation in Ukraine, which is evolving as we speak, we have back on the podcast, the one, the only Dr. Seth Jones, my colleague who runs our international security program who is our Harold Brown chair and is also a senior vice president at CSIS. Dr. Jones, welcome back to the podcast.
1: It's great to be on. It's great to talk. Thanks for having me, Andrew.
0: Seth, let's talk about the current battlefield situation. I've noted that you've said and others have said that battlefield is shrinking. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, Andrew, what what I essentially mean by that is the geographic area where there is fighting right now is largely on a 600-mile front that extends sort of just west of Kherson and that winds around past Mariupol uh, through the Donbass and then up just west of Kharkiv. And it's areas in particular on the western flank of Luhansk right now that are seeing the vast majority of fighting. The Russians have probably a total of about somewhere between 95 and 105 battalion tactical groups in Ukraine. That's about 142,000 forces. They've got irregular forces, uh, including militias that they continue to work with from Donetsk and Luhansk. They're digging trenches, placing mines at or near the front lines, constructing rail lines, repairing bridges, repairing roadways to improve the lines of communication, because it was the logistics that really hurt them badly in and around areas like Kyiv. So they've focused their efforts on trying to expand their territorial control in this, this arc, again, about a 600 mile front in Southern, Eastern, and Northeastern parts of Ukraine.
0: Seth, our colleague, Elliot Cohen and others have pointed out that the Russians really haven't done a good job at their job, which is fighting in this war. And, you know, they've been good at being brutal, which is horrible, but they're not much in terms of tactics and they're not much in terms of of victories. What do you think's going on?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is that their training and planning on the logistics for the war, particularly for their ground forces, was clearly deficient. During the Russian push to Kiev in the early phase of the war, Russian ground forces faced massive logistical and command and control challenges operating in contested areas deep inside of Ukraine. They didn't have access to rail transport. There were uh, roads that were clogged with Russian vehicles. And what those forward-deployed Russian ground forces found is, is that the, their army could not quickly and efficiently move fuel to those forward-deployed units, munitions, spare parts, and other material. The Russian Air Force also ran out of long-range precision-guided munitions, such as laser and satellite-guided bombs. So, I mean, that's a key part of the Russian military campaign right now, what they call reconnaissance strike complex. It's their use use of UAVs and some satellite imagery to conduct reconnaissance and then to use long-range precision fires. Well, their logistics problems meant that, you know, they had an insufficient supply of precision-guided munitions. They ran out. They ran into broader industrial uh, base limitations. They couldn't replenish expended munitions when they occurred. The sanctions that have been put in place by the West have limited their act- access to some technological components of Russian weapon systems that they had gotten from the U.S. or the British markets. So these, these logistical problems have ended up really crippling the Russian military's ability to actually prosecute a war. There are at least two other issues, big problems that the Russians have had. A second is they just went in with too small of a force, particularly with a population that has risen up against them. And they haven't been able to control much territory with the size of the force they've had. They haven't been able to block Ukraine's Western borders and prevent the supply of foreign weapons, systems, fuel. I mean, the lack of a blocking force in the the Western Ukrainian border with NATO countries has been strategic in its impact because it's just allowed so much material and help to come in. And then a final issue, which has been, Andrew, probably for me among the most surprising is Russia, as many people expected, conducted a range of of offensive cyber operations and electronic warfare. The goal was to blind Ukrainian command and control, threaten key critical infrastructure for a prolonged period. And we did see a little bit of that early on. We saw destructive wiper attacks on hundreds of Ukrainian government and critical infrastructure. But what do we see in response? Microsoft stepped up and aided directly with cyber defense. We saw Elon Musk and Starlink step up and provide low earth orbit satellites, facilitate the internet and internet connections, including for the Ukrainian government. NSA and US Cyber Command uh, provided direct assistance to the Ukrainian government. So these are all things that either Russia failed at, particularly logistics, small footprint, or that there was a lot of help from the West, both states and non-state actors, that blunted Russian operations. When you combine all that together, you get a a generally failed primary objectives for Vladimir Putin.
0: Seth, it, it seems to me that the United States and the West have been pretty impressive in their assistance to the Ukrainians without losing a single life, without putting any NATO or United States military boots on the ground. What do you think about the performance so far, and how has it really helped Ukraine?
1: Well, so far, Andrew, the West, including the United States, has been very impressive at providing military, economic, and diplomatic assistance, including actions like sanctions. On the military side, it's been sustained military assistance, to the Ukrainians, including a lot of items that they've asked for and have needed. Javelins, stingers, and laws anti-tank guided munitions, various types of UAVs, howitzers. These have all been used recently in some of the frontline fighting. In addition, the sanctions continue to escalate against the Russians, and that includes businesses in the West, McDonald's, Starbucks, and a range of others that continue to pull out and have made essentially a long-term decision. They are not doing business in Russia for the foreseeable future. And then even diplomatically, the way that the West has provided assistance and given an outlet to uh, President Zelensky in the U.S. Congress, in the Bundestag, in the House of Commons, at Davos, in the UN. It's just, it's it's been a tremendous support. And now with the introduction, likely introduction, of Sweden and Finland into NATO, the NATO club is expanding, probably not to Ukraine, but it will be extending to Russia's borders with Finland. Certainly not anything like Vladimir Putin expected when he started the war in February.
0: Well, let's talk about Sweden and Finland for a second. It certainly seems like they're going to join NATO relatively soon. And that has got to be a problem for Russia's Vladimir Putin. I'm told right now in phone calls between
1: uh, Vladimir Putin and Swedish and Finnish officials, the Russians have remained relatively calm in the face of what is likely to be an expansion of NATO to more territory on Russia's borders. I mean, there have been some challenges with the Turks. NATO officials, including US officials, are fairly confident still that they can work through those issues. They have to deal with what they consider to be Kurdish terrorists and and support entities operating in the uh, Nordic countries. But if those issues can be resolved, and it looks like at this point, they're probably going to be resolved, then Russia will be in a very different position. And I think, you know, for the moment, there's not really much the Russians can do. They're tied down in Ukraine right now. They can rattle their sabers a bit on the nuclear side, for example. They could forward deploy warheads to areas like Kaliningrad between the Baltic states and Poland. They could possibly conduct an underground nuclear test that would certainly get the attention of a lot of countries. But the Russians are in no position to invade Sweden or Finland, conduct long-range strikes against them. I think what the Swedes and Finns are most concerned about until they become NATO countries probably is more threats in the gray zone, disinformation campaigns, possibly subversion or sabotage, targeting fiber optic underwater cables you know general offensive cyber operations those are the more likely threats rather than conventional or nuclear ones uh, to those states right now so but i i do think andrew the introduction of of finland and sweden is likely to trigger a much more concerning longer term trend and that is i think we really do have an iron curtain that has slowly moved eastward over the past couple of months. And it really, I think, is being constructed right now from the Russian Finland border through the Baltic states, down through Poland. There are a couple of kind of no man's land countries like Ukraine, Moldova. And then, you know, with the Russian Chinese cooperation right now, that that curtain may very well go down into Asia. So that's the sort of long-term worry here is that the tension and competition and even the possibility of conflict will only increase over the next couple of
0: years. So while Finland and Sweden really benefit from becoming beefed up European militaries, we've got an awful lot to worry about beyond that because Russia will figure out some way to counter it by encroaching on Asia. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And so what happens as Russia and China watch all this? I know Russia and China are currently engaged in military exercises. You talked about the competition. Tell me what you think that equation looks like.
1: Well, I think what the U.S. has tried to signal this week with President Biden is that the U.S. would defend Taiwan in a war with China. And I think what's important bring us back to the Ukraine theater is that the West remains uh, tight in cooperating together to support the Ukrainians, that assistance continues, that the defense budgets of European states continues to rise. They're buying more equipment that will be useful in deterring, and if they have to, to fight the Russians from F-35s, fifth-generation fighter, to air defense systems. Including some of the frontline states like Finland is going to have to think very seriously now about uh, missile defense sitting so close to Russian uh, air, ground and naval
0: forces. I mean, isn't everybody in the region, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Finland, Sweden, aren't they all going to want their own version of the Iron Dome? Well,
1: I don't think most countries are going to be able to afford the Iron Dome, especially when it comes... I mean, the Israelis only have to worry about, you know, much less sophisticated missiles and standoff weapons coming from Hezbollah and some Iranian proxy groups operating in Syria and and to some degree Iraq as well. But the Israelis do not have to worry yet as much about a first world nation or, or some, something, a nation that aspires to be that, like the Russians do with long range strike. I mean, the, even the Iranians don't have the precision guided strike capabilities that the, the Russians do. So yes, I, it would be Iron Dome on steroids, which would be awfully expensive. And frankly, based on the proximity of frontline NATO states to Russia, like literally on the border, i don't think there'll be any way to stop incoming ballistic missiles certainly not hypersonic missiles you're really banking on deterrence and ideally also extended u.s nuclear deterrence that's what's going to save
0: you in the end let me ask you about the calls for ukraine to possibly cede territory to russia in order to end this conflict henry kissinger mentioned this at davos this week Others have mentioned it as well. Tell me your thoughts.
1: Well, it's a serious issue because what the Russians are doing in territory right now, again, sort of north of Crimea, snakes around the Ukrainian-Russian border up up to the Kharkiv area, is they have deported, or in some cases tortured and executed, pro-Ukrainian civilians and encouraged ethnic Russians to remain. They've also replaced Ukrainian officials with handpicked pro-Russian officials. So, for example, Vladimir Saldos, the former mayor of Kherson, is now the head of the Russian-picked Regional Military Civilian Administration in Ukraine. So he's a Russian-picked individual. He's announced that the area, quote, will become the Kherson region of the Russian Federation, so they are essentially signaling annexation into Russia. And I think when you look at what the Russians are doing, look at the currency. They're replacing the Ukrainian currency with the Russian ruble in cities like Melitopol. They have taken critical infrastructure such as nuclear power plants and steel plants, and they've rerouted the internet through Russia. They've issued newly married couples, in a range of these areas with Russian Federation wedding certificates. They're now flying Russian flags, not Ukrainian flags. They've they've erased or painted over Ukrainian symbols on the sides of buildings. At schools, they're they're now creating Russian language schools, revising the education system, including the curriculum. They've got Russian military, intelligence, police officials that have tried to penetrate cities and villages rounded up and detained protesters. So this is essentially de facto Russian annexation and uh, state building in illegally occupied Ukrainian territory. So the, the reality is that any negotiation that we have going forward, I think the Russians are essentially going to consider a chunk of this territory theirs now. This is what they're saying publicly. And um, Mariupol is certainly theirs. Mariupol is there now too. So I I think that we're in a position right now where the Ukrainians are not going to give up any territory that the Russians have tried to annex either now, since February of 2022, or even before that in the Donetsk and Luhansk areas. And the Russians will. I. It's going to be an impasse and I think the question Andrew and Henry Kissinger's comments raise this is where do western governments start to sit on this one do they want to end the war as it stand and are willing to essentially have a division of Ukraine where the front lines sit right now are there a number of western countries that are that are going to be willing to live with that if it means largely an end or at least a significant decrease in the fighting Maybe. You know, we've seen some signals from the French that they may be willing to accept something along these lines. So I think this is where what we've seen right now with NATO is a lot of the impressive action from NATO so far in supporting the Ukrainians. Will that persist on the diplomatic front? I think that is an open question.
0: Interesting. And something we'll have to watch. Meanwhile, President Zelensky of Ukraine was also at Davos this week, or spoke virtually at Davos, and he called for maximum sanctions against Russia. What Do you think that'll have any impact?
1: I think at the end of the day, what the Russians have shown they are most worried about is their performance on the battlefield. So sanctions will have and do have a short and midterm impact on the Russian economy. They will have a, probably a long-term impact Some of that will depend on the ability to substitute uh, products from other markets, whether it's India or China or elsewhere. But I think at the end of the day, I don't think the Russians are going to be deterred or coerced based on sanctions. At the end of the day, it's going to be how do they perform on the battlefield? And they certainly have had difficulty in some areas, but we now see solidifying Russian activity in a small segment of Ukraine. And I think if they are essentially willing to try to solidify these gains and negotiate based on them, I don't think sanctions are, they're gonna influence them either way. I think at the end of the day, this is really about their performance on the battlefield. And they're just, look, they're gonna look east now. They're not gonna look west anymore. They're gonna look east. And we see that with the Chinese Russian joint military exercise this week. That is the future of Russia now. It is not the West. That's quite clear. At this point in 2022, the future of Russia is in Asia.
0: But Vladimir Putin, of course, thinks that he's European and that Russia is a European nation. You're saying that's just not going to be the case.
1: That's not going to be the case. I think uh, this is why they are, at the end of the day, going to have to swallow sweden and finland as nato members and of course vladimir putin considers russia a european and an asian power they will have capabilities in europe they've got black sea access now warm water ports they control the sea of azov they've got a massive blockade of ukraine itself in the black sea they also have reached into central asia south asia and East, East Asia, so they are much bigger now than, and, and they don't have allies in Western Europe and much of Eastern Europe anymore. So I, I do think, I think the future, frankly, of Moscow and Putin in particular does not lie in Europe anymore. Just, they don't have allies there. I think that's been made very clear to them with the sanctions, with the military assistance, and the diplomatic support to Ukraine. The future is in Asia.
0: So it's hard to know what Vladimir Putin might accept as an end to this war. He certainly hasn't offered any off ramps, but if the Russian military continues to sustain these kinds of losses that we've seen and continue to be embarrassed on the battlefield, you know, what is the the prognosis for them? Are they just going to continue to get beat up and and swallow their losses? I mean, how much longer can the Russian people sit by while their kids are dying.
1: Well, Andrew, I I think the Russians at some point, the costs of continuing to fight will outweigh any of the benefits. And the Russians do have contiguous territory under their control. So they could cut their losses now and essentially control key parts of southern and Eastern Ukraine. And that may be enough of a win for Vladimir Putin's Russian population for the moment that they can put a strategic pause the way way they did in 1996 during the Chechen War, focus on rearming, rebuilding, reorganizing, improving logistics, training of the Russian uh, ground forces, air forces. The Navy's actually performed reasonably well in the Black Sea despite losing the flagship vessel, the Moskva, but really focusing on the air and ground units. And then just essentially treat it as a frozen conflict and then go back at it in uh, a year or two or three years. That is a viable option. And in fact, I increasingly believe that that is the direction they're likely to head is cut their losses at some point sooner rather than later for the moment, because they've got contiguous territory now in Ukraine.
0: Seth Jones, thanks so much for these insights. A lot to think about here, and we'll have you back very soon.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020,